Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD, bodybuilder, back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today, I'm joined again by Menno Henselmans for part two of our muscle group specific training guides. On the last episode, we talked about the big proximal muscles, including the glutes, hamstrings, quads, chest, and back. So if you haven't checked that one out, make sure you do, because I don't want to see anyone out there not training their legs or their back. I think a lot of people, you know, will understand the importance of training the smaller, these more showy muscle groups that we'll be talking about today. We'll be going over the shoulders, traps, and arms and forearms, and maybe more if we have time. So thanks again for being on the show, Mano. My pleasure. The last talk was really well received, so let's get into it. Yeah, actually, surprisingly, I've, yeah, I've been getting a lot of you know people saying, you and Mano need to hurry up with part two. So here we are back. And we're going to be delivering some massive value today. We'll be going over the anatomy of these muscles and how that informs their function. And then we will be talking about how to train them for optimal hypertrophy. So yeah, let's start off with the shoulders and maybe I'll just quickly touch on the anatomy uh, initially with the shoulders. We're mainly looking at the deltoid muscles and people will talk about the anterior lateral and posterior portions of the deltoid muscles and their main purpose is raising the arm um yeah what do you have to say about i guess the function anatomy yeah the the delts are an interesting muscle even though they're technically one muscle they have uh, in between front and back we have opposing functions so front is you know raising to the front side is raising uh, raising to the side and back is basically pulling it towards pulling your elbow towards your body either this way like a reverse fly or down and I think that's also something a lot of people uh, forget about that during chin-ups you actually have very significant activity in the the rear delts uh, a lot of people also talk about the medial delts but those don't exist they're the lateral delts <laughs> yes. as you as you correctly stated so the medial refers to towards the inline of the body, and that would be very bad if you, if you if your delts your delts would sort of sink sink inwards. You want the delts to go outward, which uh, is why they're called the lateral delts. It's a technicality, but it's fun to see that uh, so many people get it wrong. Side delts is also fine if you want a simpler term. And the, these muscles function a lot like a continuum. So based on a combination of uh, interestingly, the rotation of the shoulder, so internal versus external rotation, and which of the movement patterns I just simulated you're doing, you activate more of the front slash side slash rear delts. And the way a lot of people do their uh, side lateral raises, where the arm is a little bit in front in the scapular plane, uh, or even a bit more, and they also bend the arm a bit, putting the dumbbell or cable even further forward, you actually have very, very significant activity in the front delt mm. and i think that well by by design then you're also limiting activity in the the rearmost portion of the side belts and you're you're training the front delts a lot whereas the front delts are the only muscle group where i would say most people are much more prone to overtrain it than to undertrain it in mm -hmm. fact that goes so far as to say that the vast majority of people don't even need any isolation work or any emphasis on the front delts because you're hitting them with any overhead press any lateral raise will also hit them 
many variations of more complicated like landmine type lateral raises will also hit them. Any type of press will also hit them. So it's more of a matter of avoiding overtraining often, especially because you always you also want to train the, the upper packs and the side delts. And a lot of people end up with big front delts, but then the side delts are lagging and the upper chest is also lagging. So that's a muscle you actually want to sort of avoid training too much. And you really want to focus on chest and side delts, which is also why, like last time we discussed chest, but I like to make my chest training very chest dominant and my delt training very side and rear delt dominant to get you those round delts and big chest rather than more like sunken upper chest and big front delts that are very disproportionate. They're not round. Mm -hmm. And I think another thing that like most muscles, people forget about uh, stretch mediated hypertrophy. So especially if you're training with dumbbells and barbells, then you're not training the sides and to some extent rear delts much in a stretched position. Like it's all, you know, it's all full contraction work. So you're, you're really not um, maximizing growth uh, in that regard probably, which is why I'm a big fan of uh, using a lot of cables. So cable lateral mm -hmm. raises, and then you want to step out a bit more towards away from the cable tower so that you really also emphasize that bottom position. Because if you're standing right at the cable tower, then you're still, the top is still by far the most difficult, but you want the whole movement to be difficult, essentially. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, and then for rear delts, uh, it, it's, it's pretty self-explanatory. You have your you have your pulling. I like high row movements in particular. Like last time we discussed lats, not a big fan of rows, uh, but you can use rows if you really focus on pulling the elbow behind the body, because when the elbow goes behind the body, the rear delts actually become the primary shoulder extensor mm. because the, the fibers of the lats, they basically, they can only pull the elbow towards the, uh, your torso. And if they go behind that, then technically the lats actually reverse function and they would pull it back. So the, the brunt of the work falls on the rear delts. Uh, and again, you want, uh, I'm a big fan of cable work so that you can also emphasize the stress position, similar to lateral raises if you do a reverse fly. I like to do it with a cable and then stepping back a bit uh, from the cable tower so that you also emphasize that stretch position. Rowing type movements, shoulder pulls and the like, if you do those, then you want to do those explosively. Otherwise, you're really limited by the, the sticking point, which is all the way in full contraction. So some momentum there is, is really beneficial. Uh, and I think even the croc rows, uh, which I'm not a fan of, but the, the, the idea of using quite a lot of momentum can actually be valuable for, uh, for back and uh, rear delt training. Mm -hmm. I think that sums up the, uh, the most important points for the, for the delts. Yeah, no, yeah, that was great. Those are great points. I actually really liked how you mentioned, you know, stretch mediated hypertrophy. And I think whenever we're talking about anatomy and function, it's always kind of something to touch on where you want, you want to think about how you can stretch the muscle. One thing that people will talk about with the side delts is that your supraspinatus is doing a lot of the work in the first sort of 30 degrees of shoulder abduction. Mm -hmm. So yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, I mean, there is some research uh, indicating that it actually does quite a lot of the work, but it's fine. You know, it doesn't, the thing with uh, compound versus isolation exercises is that activating another muscle group, and there was also a study um, 
on this pretty recently on basically hip thrusts and sort of um, straight leg hip thrusts. And you could see that activating the hamstrings alongside the glutes did not actually reduce the glutes activity. Hmm. It just also increased hamstring activity. And it makes sense, right? Like Romanian deadlifts, we know are good for both the glutes and the hamstrings, a lot of those posterior chain exercises. So that's most likely the case with the delts as well. It's not that when one, when one muscle is working a lot, it takes away from the other muscles. It's just the body is using all the muscles it can in the most optimal uh, leverages to do as much work as possible. So as long as you're going all out or you know going to close to failure, then it'll probably maximize the activity of both. And uh, you know, if we can get some extra infraspinatus activity in there, that's actually that's actually fine. Yeah, no, I love that actually. I'm a big proponent of compound training and you know, involving more muscle groups is for the most part not a bad thing. And especially for beginners who, you know, may not have a lot of time in the gym or may not understand a lot of the finer nuances it's best to aim for higher range of range of motion and really activating everything so yeah i do know a lot of people will like to you know lean over on the side delt raises to try and capitalize on that further range of motion mm -hmm. and you know i think it's a nice adjunct but i usually do recommend people have full range of motion for the most part yeah i like uh, butterfly lateral raises too um which is basically it's a double lateral raise but then you explosively heave the weight up. And when your, your arms are at your side, you externally rotate. So your arms are, are like this when your arms are at your side, but then you externally rotate the shoulder. So pointing the thumbs up and then you end up in a position like this, because if you try to, uh, it looks weird when I'm doing it, but if you end up in a position like, like, like this with your hands, then you're actually like, this is about where my arm can go. But if I uh, point my thumb up, then I can go all the way up without any issue. So the, they're also called Chinese lateral raises because the, uh, what's his name? Chinese world record holding weightlifter um, does them in some videos. Uh, you can use plates as well, which adds some uh, some grip work and some people find it more comfortable. But uh, I like those because they, they get full range of motion and they're a lot like a dumbbell press in that sense. Uh, dumbbell presses, by the way, also, you want to really get all the way down. A lot of people stop when they have the their uh, arms horizontal, like your arms are horizontal, but you can go a fair bit lower than that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The other thing people talk about is they always talk about how Arnold would say that you should internally rotate your shoulders mm -hmm. on lateral raises. Yeah, yeah, it does actually um, shift the emphasis. Like I said, the the shoulder rotation angle matters not as much as the uh, the primary movement that you're doing front versus side, but it does shift the emphasis quite a bit. And because uh, the way most people do a front raise or a side raise is actually hybrid front raise, it can make sense to internally rotate the shoulder, but it's also hell on the shoulder health. Yes. So it, it, there's much more impingement, much greater risk of, of uh, the bad type of impingement because some impingement is actually normal you know there's uh it's normal that there's friction in the shoulder but uh supracromial space width is larger when you're externally rotated and we don't want too much impingement especially not painful impingement so when i do them i tend to lean over a little bit 
which accomplishes two things. One, you're shifting the emphasis even more towards the side slash rear delts, uh, as opposed to just like this, being more mm -hmm. like this. You can you can see it very well, especially if you're um, if you have muscular shoulders and you're lean, you can literally see where how the striations run and the fibers that run exactly in line with your movements, those are the fibers you're going to activate the most. You can see that if you internally rotate the shoulder, then it's more the rear fibers that are now on the top. Whereas if you're externally rotating, it's the front. So if you're doing um, a side lateral raise with your thumbs all the way up and you're keeping your thumb all the way up, the entire movement, it's actually quite um, a lot of front delt activity or sort of the the rearmost fibers of the front delts that do a lot of the work. So if you bend over a little bit during a lateral raise, you achieve two things. One, like I said, you emphasize the lateral and rear fibers a bit more, but then you can also internally rotate and really emphasize the lateral fibers, taking the front delts basically out of the movement. Mm -hmm. And because you're a little bit more um, bend over forward, it's also safer for the shoulders. But mm. if you're doing just internally rotated and you're trying to do them standing, um, which I think was Arnold um, sometimes advocated them, is not so. Uh, I mean, it's fine if you're if you're like Arnold and you basically can't get injured. But um, for most <laughs> people, it's uh, it's not fine. <laughs> you'll yeah, you'll exactly. get shoulder pain very quickly. Yeah, I personally don't like them internally rotated. Just just as you said, it kind of decreases the space that you have for those tenons passing through, so you have more problems with impingement. So yeah, that was great for shoulders. I think that shoulders are a key muscle for people to be working on to get that you know, broadness. And moving on, let's talk about traps. So touching on the anatomy, traps basically will come off of your neck and your spine and then they attach on the clavicle and scapula. And a major function of them is to raise the shoulders. Yeah, so with the traps too, they're like the delts that they're um, sort of a fan-shaped muscle where the lower and the upper traps even have opposing functions. And the lower traps, they, uh, Q sometimes uses putting your shoulders in your pockets. They depress the scapulae, the shoulder blades, mm. them down. And then the upper traps, as you say, they're elevating the shoulders, shrugging. And then you have the middle fibers, which again, just like with the, um, the delts, you can check based on the, the orientation of the fiber. Like the fibers that run horizontal, they will really retract. And the fibers that run downward, they will also depress and the fibers that run upwards, they will also elevate. Now, an interesting thing about the upper traps is that because the fibers definitely don't run vertical, they actually run more like this. And in some people you can, it depends on your shoulder structure. Like if you look at my upper traps, they're very, because I have relatively broad shoulders, they're, they're quite horizontal. Whereas if you, I think like this is a, is a pretty good example where he has fibers that really run a lot like this. Mm. And if your fibers run more like this, then you actually don't uh, train the upper traps or only like the, the upper uppermost fibers when you do a standard shrug with your arms all the way at your side, because the, the fibers are more horizontal. So they're they're not pulling, they're not causing shoulder elevation. Like they can cause some, some indirect um, movement uh, that way. But um, you basically need a wide grip. Like you have to do wide shrugs or overhead shrugs uh, because overhead, it's also fine. So as soon as the scapulae are um, upperly rotated, then the traps um, will elevate them. But if you're doing standard shrugs with a dumbbell or a barbell, 
then you're actually neglecting a lot of the, the upper trap fibers, especially if you have broader shoulders. So that's something, um, something that a lot of people don't do. Like they just use a standard grip, but not wide grips. Mm -hmm. uh, and that really limits the upper traps. Mm -hmm. Does the angle of your grip matter much? I think you want, um, based on paper, I think it's Johnson at all. They argued you need about, like the average individual needs like 30% abduction or even 45 to really train all the upper trap fibers during a standard shrugging movement. Which means you actually want, you know, not, doesn't have to be ultra wide, but pretty wide grip, like noticeably wider than shoulder width. Mm -hmm. Or again, or, or overhead, but most people hate overhead shrugs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then people, some people will talk about how a lot of bodybuilders don't train traps directly and they kind of rely on their pulling movements their isometric activation from deadlifts and say their side lateral raises and side delt work to get their trap training what are your thoughts on that yep i think that's uh, fair for a lot of people um especially for women most women don't want big uh a big neck and big big traps so then you really don't want to go ahead and you know but tons of shrugs in the program. Choked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if, you, if you're going for more like the men's physique um, uh, or bikini type look, then you want like broad shoulders, but you don't want like big uh, muscle neck. So you, you may not need any shrugs. On the other hand, you what you really want to do is just look at your traps and their structure and see how it would look if they got bigger and um, if, if that's what you want. So it's very much uh, the other the other heads, like middle and lower, are, are never an issue. I've basically never heard of anyone saying, well, some people say it, but it's ridiculous. Like my middle traps are too big. <laughs> uh, for some women, actually, it, it, it can be an issue. But even then, it's not really so much middle and lower that are that the issue. You know, there's a limit to how much they can protrude out. <laughs> yeah. um so it's mainly the upper traps that you want to uh, consider like do i really want a bigger upper traps and those are one of the muscles i think that uh, separates bodybuilding from more physique kind of uh, training on the other hand there are a lot of people who have like pencil neck and they're like i don't i'm not training my upper straps because i want aesthetics and it's like eh, you know i don't think it would hurt if they got bigger yeah no yeah for sure sounds good and yeah, moving on. So let's talk about the arms. So starting off with the biceps, in terms of anatomy, there are a couple muscles we're talking about here. So you've got your biceps brachii, where there are two heads, the long and short head, and they basically go across and attach at the scapula and then come down onto the radius. And then you've also got brachialis, which is a muscle that comes off of the humerus, so the arm bone, and then attaches on the ulna and that one lies underneath the bicep so it's not as well seen but it does contribute as well to size yeah um, and then you can even if you're doing all, all around elbow flexors because of the researchers usually talk about elbow flexors rather than biceps most bodybuilders talk about biceps uh, because biceps is the the one you, you really see the most you know it's the the standard um muscle pose muscle uh, but the uh, brachioradialis actually runs quite a bit 
uh, over the forearm and still into the arm. If you use hammer grip type movements, then you can really see it. Brachialis, as you said, is not really something you have to program for because for one, it's not very visual. It's underneath the biceps for the most part. If you get really jacked uh, or really lean, then you can sort of see it here. There's like this extra sort of muscle uh, in between the biceps and the triceps. But any kind of elbow flexor work that you're doing, you're going to train the brachialis. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it just goes along for the right. Uh, it's a bit like the terrorist major for, for the lats, like the little helper on top. And if you just grow the lats, it will grow along with it. So brachialis, you can largely ignore from a programming perspective, I think. Some people get insanely obsessed about biceps work and uh, insanely creative too. Whereas they're, they're barely doing any leg work. They're looking <laughs> yeah. at, you know, nine different variations of curls to target the brachialis and the short head and the long head and maximum peak. And uh, yeah, uh, for most people, it's probably not really needed because the, the value of adding isolation work to compound work is it's there based on the research, but it's not major. So biceps seems like a simple muscle. It just it flexes flexes your arms, flexes the elbow, but it's actually triarticulate because as you say, it crosses the shoulder and the forearms too. So it crosses three joints. Now, that is not as complicated in terms of program design as you think it would be because it's super weak at the shoulder. It's basically only the short head that causes shoulder flexion and very little. It's, it's, it's so weak for the long head, the tendon contributes, but it doesn't seem to be active muscular uh, contribution or like you know a few percent if you look at EMG work and cadaver research where they, they pull on the muscle and you can see which which muscle does what mm. um, so you can largely ignore it but it is a, a reason not to do biceps work with your elbows uh, way out front mm. like the you know cable where you're doing it like this cable biceps uh, curls I don't think there's there's much point in it. And if anything, you're just weakening the short head and maybe the long head a little bit, but especially the short head uh, because it's it's already flexing at that uh, joint and it's too short. And actually, if you look at the, uh, the length tension relationship of the biceps, then even more so than the other muscles, you can really see why stretch mediated hypertrophy is, is so uh, likely so important. We have one study showing greater or very strong trend towards greater biceps growth with more raised motion. And uh, as likely because the biceps is strongest in anatomical position, like most muscles. And anatomical position in the case of the biceps is actually nearly full stretch. Mm. So if you're doing dumbbell curls or barbell curls, then you're not training the biceps basically at all in the bottom position, in the fully stretched position, because gravity is pulling straight down along with the arm. So you have a 90 degree flexion, you have maximum resistance. You're mm -hmm. mainly training that, that full contraction, that squeeze gives you a nice pump and burn and everything. But actually in terms of muscular tension on the bicep brachii, you're getting a lot more if you're training them in a stressed position. And you can actually also feel this with things like Scott curls, um, concentration curls. You can really feel that very high tension in the biceps compared to if you just do pump work. Mm -hmm. So I think that's important. I like Bayesian curls, which is basically a cable curl, but most people do a cable curl facing the cable tower. And during a Bayesian curl, you face away from the tower. So it's behind you. And what you can do then is you get a great stretch and you can lean over forward 
to also get a great um, contraction, like peak contraction. And then you lean over back again to really get that nice full stretch. And you can sort of use the body movement to create a very smooth uh, net strength curve. So the resistance curve of the exercise matches your strength curve very well. And uh, it's like accommodating resistance, which tends to outperform uh, traditional resist static resistance uh, in uh, studies. So there are some uh, some nice uh, tidbits, I think, for the uh, for the biceps, even though it's uh, just like just flex the arms, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think that was great that we touched on the basically the value of the different angles of your curling movement, where. Yeah, you want to basically get a stretch and if you look at the way free weights work a lot of the time you're losing out at the bottom of the range of motion so thinking about how to stretch the muscles important that's actually also why i really like the as you said the bayesian curls where you can get that stretch and get that tension at the back and i think that's something that's a little bit unique about cables that people can yeah. capitalize on how much neutral grip work do you like to include as, as you mentioned about the brachioradialis. Mm -hmm. Yep, some. Um, so the brachioradialis has the best leverage in a neutral position, and it brings the arm towards neutral when it's either pronated or supinated. But, and most people have taken, like as a general rule, there is some research indicating that when muscles have the best leverage, the body recruits them preferentially, which is efficient, right? You mm -hmm. recruit the muscles that are uh, have to produce the least force internally to get the most force output externally. But if you're training close to failure, that probably doesn't become um, as important anymore because in the end, you're recruiting all the muscle fibers anyway. Mm. It's the same kind of with the debate between heavyweights and lightweights. If you take a lightweight set, as long as it's at least 30 RM or above that, um, if you take it to failure or very close to failure, you're gonna recruit all the muscle fibers in the end anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's probably similar in this case. And there have been a few studies that actually show uh, they're they're all they're all poorly designed, I have to say. But the, at least the the general trend is that the forearm rotation does not really affect activity of the biceps. Mm. I think there are a lot of textbooks that really originally stated it does, where the idea comes from. Supinated grip trains this, the biceps, neutral mm -hmm. trains the brachioradialis, pronated trains more forearm. But actually, probably it's just a function of different leverage and they all train the biceps. There was also a study by Gentil et al, which is a bit shady because he collab collaborates a lot with um, Matthias Barbalio, who was uh, called out for basically being a fraud and his research being improbable to the point of being uh, evident, <laughs> evidently fraudulent, mm. um, which of course, you know, uh, the original offers, um, did, did like including Greg Knuckles and I think Andrew Vygotsky was in on the project. They didn't, uh, outright say it, but that was the, uh, the implication. In any case, that study was not with Barbalio. It was with his mentor, Paulo Gentil, who is really big in Brazil where, where I'm at the moment. And it's found that pulldowns, even quite wide grip pulldowns, actually stimulate as much biceps growth as biceps curls. 
Hmm. And it, it does match with the overall research that compound versus isolation actually doesn't matter. You know, it's just tension in the muscle and pronated or supinated grip also doesn't matter. So, um, and I think these were barbell curls. So they also don't get stretch media hypertrophy, pull downs hmm. also don't. So I guess, you know, in those aspects, they're, they're pretty similar. Probably depends a little bit on the grip and your execution. If you, because if you're pulling weight down, for example, then you're not targeting the arms as much. But with specific pulldowns, presumably you can get equal biceps growth as with a curl. So, yeah, I think there's value in using some different grips in the program. But overall, probably if you're just training close to failure, you have some variation in there, then I don't think you have to go out of your way to get like every grip in the program and do super fancy uh, uh, 10 different grip variations. Yeah see people getting really creative with their curls you know curling plates and things and grabbing yeah, funny strange shaped objects like sitting sitting <laughs> like half seated in front of the cable stack and curling like this you see people do biceps curls in like 10 different positions and when it comes to leg work it's like squats and uh like maybe not squats maybe leg press like leg extension <laughs> It's like hamstrings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, man. So, yeah, speaking of that, we've spent enough time on the biceps. And I just want to take a moment out to plug Menno's book. So this was recently dropped. It's The Science of Self-Control. And I just had a look at it. It's a great book, Menno. It's really interesting stuff. And I think that it's really cool that someone from the fitness niche is also talking about the, you know, mental discipline aspect of that because, Ultimately, whenever we talk about training, sustainability and consistency are at the bottom of the ladder and most important. So finding a way for people to get better at being consistent is going to be key. Um, could you put, you know, yeah, could you tell us about the book in really brief? Sure. Yeah. And thanks for the shout out. It's uh, yeah, like I said, it's called the science of, or like you said, it's called the science of self-control. And I basically distill over 500 studies into 53 practical tips to stick to your diet, make your workouts less effortful, increase your productivity. That does also how the book's organized, one chapter for those things, and increase your all-round uh, motivation. And I think it's, it goes deep into the, um, the psychology and the cognitive neuroscience of what self-control really is, but in a practical way, so that you can really understand what, what's going on in your own brain, because one of the big themes of the book is actually we don't know what really goes on in our own brain often. We just more infer it from things we do. And yeah, I think for consistency, like you say, um, and just the mental aspect, enjoying your workouts, it's, it's really uh, fundamental knowledge to have the, the psychology and everything in check because it's, in the end, dieting is a lot like smoking. There have been a few posts. I think Mike Israel posted a nice uh, meme saying, uh, you know, like dumb people say, if you, uh, you know, eat, eat less to lose belly and then you get sort of more knowledge and then you get all these crazy uh, theories and carbs versus fat and uh, insulin model and everything mm. and lots of knowledge. And then in the end, if you get up your knowledge further, <laughs> it's you're, you're back down to eat less to lose belly, you know. So with smoking, too, it's like just quit smoking. Everyone knows that's that's the idea. And with cutting, it's like eat less, you know, reduce energy intake. That's you know, physically, what it comes down to, but actually achieving it in a sustainable manner that's also enjoyable and allows you to live 
a nice life outside of fitness, that's where the challenge comes in for most people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think people will benefit a lot from that. So make sure you go check out the book. It's easily, you know, Googleable. Going on with our muscle group specific training, I want to talk about the triceps. So triceps, as the name suggests, have three main parts to them. You've got your medial, long, and uh, lateral triceps. And they basically come off of your humerus and scapula, and then they attach at your ulna, which is the bone along your, along your, the pointy part of your elbow. And the main function of the tricep is to extend your elbow, but they also have some, since they cross the shoulder joint, that it also gets, the long head gets stretched when your arms are in a more overhead position. Yep, exactly. And it's, it's exactly that uh, the last nuance that uh, makes a whole lot of difference for a tricep training. And unlike the biceps, the long head's contribution at the shoulder is significant, especially when the arm is more uh, raised. So the, the triceps give basically the horseshoe type muscle appearance on the back of your arm. And uh, it's often said that they're like two thirds of the arm muscle, which I'm not sure if that's uh that's true i mean it of course depends on the relative development and your structure and also where you you sort of take the cross section but there are actually if you want to get bigger arms triceps are generally more important than biceps mm -hmm. now the lateral health is pretty simple the medial head is uh is super simple and you can often ignore it it's not very large if you train the lateral head you also train the medial head and uh, just extending the the elbow doesn't matter if it's compresses or skull crushers, skull overs, uh, any type of fancy triceps isolation work. But the long head, because it also pulls the elbow down, if you're doing a press, then the long head is a conflict because it's a biarticulate muscle and it's, it has a conflicting role now at the shoulder because if the, the long head activates maximally during a bench press, it wants to pull the elbows back down. Whereas the that's the opposite of what you do what you want to do, right? During a press, you want to extend the shoulder, you want to raise the elbows. But you do want to extend the arms, and that's where the triceps would come in handy. And as a result of that, it was, was long debated on whether this actually matters because it's, it's not so strong at the shoulder, maybe the, uh, the pecs and the, um, the delts can compensate, right? If they activate enough, then it doesn't matter that the triceps is also pulling the elbow back down. So if they're strong enough, they can just overrule the triceps and the tricep still helps in extending the arms. But actually compiled a research review on this a few years ago. And there I showed that the average triceps growth, like the growth rate of the triceps during push-ups and bench presses mm. is only half of the pecs. Mm. So that's a substantial difference. Now growth rates can depend on the multitude of factors. Maybe there's an inherent difference between muscles. I mean, we don't really have reason to believe why there would be. They're both relatively fast twitch muscle groups. Um, they were all in untrained individuals, so it wasn't a factor of uh, different training status. Mm -hmm. And then in 2020, I think we had a nice study by Brandao, 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 whatever, Brazilian, I guess, uh, where they um, specifically compare I think it was skull crushers or a similar type exercise and barbell bench presses. And for the total triceps growth, the difference was not that major, 
um, or actually it, it was it wasn't statistically significant or not not very, but actually in terms of effect size, it was pretty big. And then they also looked at regional growth, and there you could really see the long head was really underdeveloped when only bench pressing. So bench pressing is fine for lateral health, the lateral head, uh, which is on the outside, but the back of the arm, which is actually where a lot of the, the meat of the muscle is, it doesn't get developed much from doing pressing. And there was a recent, uh, earlier study already showing that dumbbell work, at least dumbbell bench presses, similar probably for overhead presses, really don't do much for the, um, the triceps either, because at least with a barbell, you can also have lateral force because if the, the, the elbows are basically, you're doing this with your triceps, because mm. the bar, unless you're really literally tearing the bar apart, that force is essentially transmitted upward. Whereas mm. with a dumbbell, if you activate the triceps slot, you like throw a dumbbell out to the side. So mm. it won't work. So dumbbell presses are really bad for, um, for the triceps. And even barbell bench presses uh, and just barbell presses in general are probably very mediocre for the long head, which mm. means you almost need to treat the long head and the lateral and medial head as separate. So lateral and medial head, generally not an issue, but long head is uh, a bit of a different story. So you probably want your triceps work to emphasize the long head because it's very difficult otherwise to maintain that balance to train the long head well without overtraining the hell out of the, the lateral head in the process. So I like exercises like lat prayers because they not only train the lats very well, but they also train the long head of the triceps um, without the lateral head. And that's pretty unique with exercise, like pullover movements are pretty much the only practical way you can do it. And that's a nice way to, to get some balance between the different heads of the triceps and the triceps isolation work that I like to do. I make it very long head dominant. So you can do that by having more overhead movements and doing exercises like scullovers, which is like uh, sometimes called pagier pullover, but that's more lat focused. Scullover is basically a skull crusher, but instead of the weight going towards your skull, you let it come over your skull and then you're letting the elbow come back a little bit and then you sort of throw the weight up. So it's like a skull crusher, but you let it come behind your head. You want to do it at the back of a bench. You can Google it. I have some exercise demonstrations uh, online. And the nice thing is that because of the added elbow motion, it's not only a lot easier on the elbows, but it's also emphasizing the long head because the long head is now functioning at two joints at the same time. It's, ex it's extending the shoulder and um, extending the arms. So the long head is maximal contribution to the exercise. Plus, because the arm is overhead, it stretches the long head more, as you already said, and you probably get some stretch meter hypertrophy. I've, I've heard it said, uh, I think it's mostly Chris Beersley's work that people cite, but it's, it's become this thing that the triceps cannot um, get stretch meter hypertrophy. And I think that conclusion is very premature at the moment. Uh, and it's mostly based on the lateral head, whereas the long head can actually be stretched so far that it can, uh, get into passive insufficiency. So we know it gets very weak at that point. So probably if you're doing straight overhead triceps work, which is also really good, or like scullovers, but especially all the way overhead triceps work, you're probably getting stretch mediated hypertrophy in the long head. Mm. Um, and that will help balance out a total arm size. I know that for me, 
it's something I've focused a lot more on in the last year, last two years. And my arms are uh, a bit bigger, like half an inch or so, I think. So um, that's, of course, anecdotal, doesn't mean much. But I do think uh, the long head is really underrated. A lot of people overtrain the lateral health and underrate the, the long head. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I actually agree. I think long head super important, kind of from, from my own experience. And yeah, it's really interesting, you know, looking at the anatomy and how, where you can, you can see how much difference there is in activation of different heads of, you know, quote the same muscle, but yeah, the, you really need to think about including some long head prioritization in your training. Moving on, talking about the forearms. So yeah, we're now we're getting to some smaller muscle groups while we're on the topic of arms, you'll see a lot of people in the gym sitting and doing their forearm work. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on the importance, I guess, first of all, of just adding direct forearm training? Yeah. Uh, a lot of my clients don't do forearm work because the, the cost benefit is quite poor. Like you, you basically, the, the best bang for your buck is probably wrist curls because then you train well, most of the biggest forearm muscles that's, um, uh, that you'll see like the, the more meat towards towards the elbow the more the more meaty part there and then if you really want to maximize total forearm growth you need to do a whole lot of different movements like you you know ulnar uh, ulnar deviation pronation um a lot of movements that are also iffy to do and quite often lead to wrist issues and are also difficult to load um because some of those exercises are so weak that if you, know, if you add like 2.5 kilos or you go to the next dumbbell, it's already very difficult. Mm -hmm. You're looking at like five extra exercises, mm -hmm. basically for many people, almost doubling the amount of exercise in the, in the, on a day they do just to get a little bit of extra forearm growth. Now it does work. There's actually a study showing that if you add a lot of forearm work, like a lot to a normal type <laughs> program, then you get bigger forearms and you can sometimes see it. You see it in some wrestlers, uh, judokas and stuff, that also when they, they start doing a lot of wrestling and grip work, they get bigger forearms. But it's not major. And especially, you know, if you have good genetics and you, those people probably, they generally have bigger wrists, so their forearms have more growth potential. If you're like average guy, and especially for women, if you, you don't care that much about forearms specifically, it's a lot of work for not that much reward. So it's one of those things where I say, you know, if people come with it themselves, or if I see they have a lot of issues doing like bench presses to keep their wrists from slacking over back, mm -hmm. then some wrist curls are a nice extra bang for your buck. And if you really want maximum growth, yeah, you can add like 10 different movements. <laughs> but even on a bodybuilding stage, it, you're probably literally too far from the judges that <laughs> it's gonna make or break your, your, your ranking. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that most people just don't have enough time in the gym, you know, to be hitting forearms. And if you see people training forearms directly and they're only in the gym a few times a week, I mean, you're probably better off hitting some more, you know, rows or really proximal yeah. movements because, I mean, those will give you some forearm and grip training indirectly as well. And actually looping back to what we were talking about earlier, I think that people don't realize how big a contributor the brachioradialis is to your forearm size. So yep. yeah, for people, you know, we, we talked about that in biceps and uh, 
but it's something to think about where, you know, having a hammer curl will actually get you a lot of forearm training. Going on to abs, I think this will be of interest to a lot of people. The abs are pretty complex group of muscles. You've got your rectus abdominis, which is the standard six pack that people love to talk about. And then you've got your oblique muscles as well. And with those, there are three of them that lie on top of each other. And the abs mainly will flex your, your, your spine, but they also will help you with trunkal rotation. Yeah. The, uh, the abs are uh, also one of those muscles where it's debatable if you really want to, to train them, because the foremost thing to know is that you can only make a muscle bigger by training it. Like you put a lot of tension on it, and as a result, it hypertrophies. So it gets bigger. And the cliche that abs are made in the kitchen is very true mm-hmm. because you it's mainly about having them visible. And they also don't have that much growth potential because the, the abs, like the six-pack muscle, the rectus abdominis, for one, it, it doesn't need to be that developed if you're lean. And if it is well-developed, there's only some that protrudes through the, the fasciae. So like it doesn't get that much bigger. And even if it could get bigger, it's questionable if you really want that because then it would sort of, you know, <laughs> do you really want your abs to pop out like two inches from your from your belly? Because then your, your belly would be two inches bigger, you know? Yeah. So um, there's that. And um, especially the obliques are a muscle that most people probably, if you want a slimmer waist, you really don't want big obliques because they will thicken your waist. And... It, it's it's not trivial like my waist uh and i don't even do that much app work i've done i've done it in the past years to see uh if it makes a difference uh and it does it's it's like uh med- medium impact i'd say but i know some people they get sort of ninja turtle physique where you can actually see like for me it's already a few inches of growth like i think i was 30 inches my waist and now it's like 34 and it's mostly the erector spinae and some some app musculature but, um, and I don't do, I'm trying not to do direct oblique work, but the problem mm. is you can't take the obliques out of any rectus abdominis work. Mm. You'll always, if you do standard crunches, which are as good as you can get, then it still contributes, the, the obliques still contribute. So for some people, what you get is you get a bigger block your waist and you have to look at someone's individual structure if that's going to be a problem. Like if you're the ultra hard gainer and you still don't have abs, even though you're very lean, then yeah, I'd say you want to do some ab work. Standard crunches, full range of motion over like a BOSU ball. And I like to have uh, a rope so that you can get really nice, big full range of motion, get stretched media hypertrophy again, and actually be able to load the exercise because that's another issue. If, If you do want to train them, most people get to the point where even the rope you know, if you're doing that with two thirds of body weight, it's really difficult to get into position and uh, uh, perform a nice movement with it. So many app machines, they're okay, but they can give back problems. Um, sometimes they don't have good app machines in the gym. So, and even those, sometimes they just don't go heavy enough. So there are a lot of potential problems with it. You have to decide, do you want to train? Often what I do is I just get people lean and then I see do you have a six pack? If you do, well, you know, probably don't have to do anything more for it. If you're like uh, doing a sport where you need a ton of core strength, okay, maybe uh, work on that and then you get some app growth along with it. 
for most people though if you just care about looking good naked you get lean you have a six pack you know what more do you want <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and if you see you don't have a six pack okay then you want to do some crunches and stuff um other than that yeah i say probably don't worry about it worry about your diet more mm -hmm. yeah nice yeah i totally agree actually i for anyone out there if you've seen it i've done a youtube video on app training and i basically say the same thing where you want to see where you're at when you're, when you're lean because genetics are going to play a big role. Like the abs don't have that much potential for growth and getting lean is the most part of the most important part. And you see like a lot of people talking online about how like, oh, like I want my abs to show, but I mean, they're, they're at like 20% body fat. So like, what, what do you know about what your abs look like? Right. If you've never, and they've never been truly lean is the thing about, I think most average people where they've never truly committed to a proper cut. So do that first. And then, yeah, I think that, you know, some ab training, even maybe as a beginner to reap those gains will, will do something, but beyond that, it's not going to make that much of a difference and maybe isn't the most important thing for your physique because leanness is going to be most important. What, what are your thoughts on isometric training for the abs, like planks or ab wheel rollups? Yeah, isometric training in general does not uh, result in as much muscle growth as dynamic training with eccentric and concentric uh, contractions. So it's more for building strength rather than building size. Hmm. And for most people, like, do you need a lot of ab strength? Uh, there's also, it's important to note that if you think you, it makes you a better athlete and everything, there's a lot of research showing that core strength is really movement specific. Like most strength is really movement specific, mm -hmm. but core strength particularly is. So if you're doing baseball, for example, then crunches or sit-ups or something, a very limited effect on your um, striking force as a baseball player. Like it's it's the the carryover is is not significant in in a lot of studies. So often it really comes down to well you can make the muscle a bit bigger and then the sport itself trains it or it doesn't. Sometimes you can mimic the the desired skill in your sports like gymnastics. Like you just know exactly which position you have to end up in and well then you can train that exact position. But otherwise, um, like it, it won't make the muscle that much bigger. So in terms of getting a six pack, it's not going to help. Um, and other than that, yeah, it, it makes you better. It's specifically that movement, like doing planks makes you better at doing planks. And if that's what you want, you know, then uh, <laughs> plank away. But otherwise, um, it's one of those things, a bit like stretching, where it's like, well, it makes you better at doing that stretch. But why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah. And that's a good point about the, sport specific core strength where i think yeah a lot of people say you know they're doing these funny like twists and you know and flip-flops where there's they're say they're training for their sport but i mean there's a lot of you know very specific and very high force output you know involvement of, of that that brings a lot of muscles in, together in concert to make yourself you know swing a baseball bat or you know sprint down the track so like doing, you know, a few crunches to make yourself a better athlete may not have the most carryover. I think we've gotten a lot of value out here. Like just one more fun muscle group since we've got time is neck training. So, mm. you know, I think that there's been kind of a popular, you know, wave of talk about direct neck training for bodybuilders recently. What are your thoughts? 
Yeah, if you take everything I said about forearm training and you insert <laughs> neck instead of forearm, you get a, a kind of a similar story, but even worse because neck training, um, well, you have all the problems with, with traps, right? If you want bigger upper traps, if you don't want bigger upper traps, you certainly don't need to bother with neck training. Mm -hmm. You can basically put it that way. If you do want bigger upper traps, then you can consider also doing neck training to also make the neck a bit bigger. It does work. There's actually, there's also a study on this, just like with the forearms, adding a lot of neck work. And again, emphasis on a lot of extra work. You do get bigger, a bigger neck. How much is the effect for most people? It's not major. If you have good genetics, it'll be a visible difference. Otherwise, barely, probably. And it's very impractical to do neck training. I've, I think the majority of my clients don't even bother. The ones that do, quite a lot of them, uh, they just give up at some point. Like where I talked to them a few years after coaching, it's like, hey, do you still do neck training? It's like, nah, just can't be bothered anymore. You have to wear a neck harness for the majority of movements. Otherwise, yeah, you're talking about, you have a plate on your head. The most bang for your buck is like the equivalent of the, the wrist curl is probably um, just the neck extension. Um, that, that, that will grow. Uh, the, the neck in terms of width probably decently uh, then if you want all the others then well you need the rotation and the, the lateral movements rotation in particular is without a neck harness really really difficult i mean mm -hmm. how are you going to train this movement you know mm -hmm. um like you can put a plate on your head which is literally what you have to do and then you you can do like lateral movements some people get headaches it's it's pretty dangerous um <laughs> yeah it's also if you get cramps it's really, really bad. I remember one time, and it wasn't even neck training at the time. Um, I was in the cinema, and um, I think I had trained neck, actually, uh, or at least traps. And I was on the, they gave me the side row. Like, you know, and it's like, you pay $20 for a ticket, and you, you get the row all the way on the side, so you're watching the movie like this. And it's like, if you want, you want to read the subtitles, you're like, you know, it really sucks. So I'd spent basically, I think it was a Star Wars movie. I spent two hours sitting like this. And then my friend said something. And it's like, oh. <laughs> and took me out of the, or I went to the gym, uh, but couldn't do a lot of movements for like, for two weeks. It can be really, really painful and really debilitating. And if you do a lot of neck training, those movements occur quite a bit more. So on top of all the, the functional problems, uh, for many people, it's also an issue that you look weird in the gym. Uh, to that, I say, you know, you go to the gym to look good outside the gym and, and many more things, health, etc. But that shouldn't be a deterring factor. But it, it is just really impractical. A lot of work, impractical work. Neck harness, you have to drag with you to the gym. Um, yeah. Most people probably not worth bothering with. Martial artists, maybe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. <clears throat> I think that... Yeah, it's one of those things where it's kind of like icing on the cake. If you're spending a lot of time in the gym and you want to sort of reach out to these other smaller muscle groups, then feel free. But I mean, as Menno said, you might end up with your neck you know, stuck to the side coming out of the movie theater. <laughs> yeah, so that's been great. I think that people are going to take a lot of value out of this. And I've been getting a lot of great feedback on the episodes with you, Menno. So this has been great. One final fun question to wrap up the podcast in writing your book i know that you've done a lot of podcast episodes on this already and maybe 
we'll talk about it another another time. But what was the most interesting thing you learned from your research, just in general, on this book? Um, I'll probably go with the uh, the free glutamate effects on willpower. There have been uh, two studies pretty recently showing that if you consume MSG in your soups, like the scary Chinese uh, uh, flavor enhancer, um, monosodium glutamate, it's just sodium and, and glutamate. I mean, glutamate is an amino acid. And uh, it, it adds umami flavor to food. If you consume that in soup, compared to the exact same soup without it, people show higher activity in their brain self-control regions, especially the prefrontal cortex, and they eat less at buffets. So there's a satiating effect. In, in a sense, hmm. what happens is you have better self-control and less appetite when you consume likely free glutamate. And that's one of those things is like kind of stranger than fiction, uh, which I, I really liked. And one of those things I actually debated about whether to include in the book for a while, but it's it's two really <laughs> valid studies, some other research that was hinting in the same direction. So um, just really cool. And you can take advantage of that by eating things like tomatoes and mushrooms, which are high in free glutamate. If you eat those before a meal, then, and I found this myself very, very strongly, it really helps control your uh, portion sizes. Wow. Yeah, no, no, that's really interesting. Would not have thought of that. You know, you'd, you'd always think about yeah. things like flavor enhancers making you eat more. But I mean, obviously, exactly. I mean, yeah. obviously it depends on what you're putting it into, but. Yeah, that makes it a little more powerful, but because in general, indeed, flavor enhancers increase how much food people eat. But in this case, apparently that effect is completely negated and then some by the effect of free glutamate, which is registered by um, receptors in the mouth. Hmm. Yeah. And if you can combine it with some kind of like low calorie option, like, yeah, tomatoes or mushrooms, then yeah, boom, exactly. cool, massive, you know, diet hack re released on this podcast. It's great. So anyways, just, just my <laughs> exactly guys. <laughs> so yeah, again, I just wanted to thank you again for coming on Menno. And I think people are going to get a lot of value out of this. Where can they find you and your book? Uh, MennoHensmans.com. I'll spam the book right in your face on the homepage and uh, you'll, you'll see everything there. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook. If you Google my name, which you probably can. So you have to go to the show notes and click on the link. Um, but it's Menno Henselmans for those that can write it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Alrighty. So we'll put those links in the description. And thanks again for being on the show. My pleasure. That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one -on -one coaching. I'm not cheap, but if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram. For more science-based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube, and we'll see you next time.